The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. May we be bold with the gospel as they are. We're all in the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord. We ask this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. I ask you to join with me as we just read our scripture from the start. If you have your Bible this morning, we are in the book of Revelation, book of Revelation. And uh, we will start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and read all the way down to chapter 8, uh, excuse me, chapter, uh, chapter 8, woo, verse 8 out of the chapter, and uh, we'll pick it up there. If you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation, that is page 1028 in your blue or black pew Bible, depending on which row you are in. And here it is, the words of the Lord, the book of Revelation to John. Specifically, though, it says in verse 1, as we looked at last week, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Remember last week we said this is the only book that we're called blessed to read. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, blessed is those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, verse 6, and make us a kingdom, priest to his God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, verse 7, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on his account, even so, amen. But I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I'll read verse 9. We'll kind of touch on this a little bit today, be unpacked more next week. But I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me this morning? We're going to get into our series, God Wins. And today we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8 with a touch of 9 as we continue on. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again that you have won the victory. You've won the battle. There are some skirmishes, skirmishes here spiritually, Lord, where Satan seems to have the upper hand or the world seems to be uh, uh, winning and, and all those things. But, Lord, we've read the book. We know the end. We know, Father, you who are in charge of, of it all. And yet, Lord, we do not shake. We do not uh, run away. We stand firm. And we know we can stand firm and immovable because your son has risen from the dead. And Lord, as we seek to honor you, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that you are glorified in all these things. Thank you, Lord, that our worship of you is so often tied to our knowledge of you. May we unpack that more today as we pray and study. In Jesus' name we ask this, and amen. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, I had to look this up just to verify but many of you all were around when this guy was around. 55 years ago this year, Elvis Presley, 
died. And he was the king, wasn't he? The king lowercase k. But several years ago, the king had one of his uh, famous auctions. One of his cars sold for over $300,000. One of his outfits sold for $115,000. Can you imagine that? And one of a vial of his sweat, apparently, supposedly, sold for $100. I'll let you go by that. And by the time the auction was done, the king, as they called him, had raised over $5 million for his estate. But the one problem, as I was reading through that older article, is that the king is dead. That king is dead. That king up there on the screen is done. But praise God, according to the Bible, we have and serve the one who is still alive. I know a king who is still living who still sits on his throne, and his kingdom rules forever and ever, and his estate is priceless. It can never be sold out, auctioned off, or put up on eBay for the highest bidder. It is a kingdom that lives on forever. And shouldn't that drive us to worship more and more, and drive us to love him more and more? Psalm 90, verse 2, Pastor Nelson read this before, but it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or before you had even formed the earth or the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We anchor our lives in all we know about this king, the God himself. And we know about God, and it ought to cause us to worship him more and more. And I don't know about you, but every day in our lives is a day of war. What or who are we going to worship today? And we know, if we know the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we worship him, it changes everything about us. It changes our perspective, it changes our outlook, it changes our motivation and our attitude. And so today, I want you to see this big idea coming forth from this introductory letter still of the Revelation. The big idea today is simply that our worship of this triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, is will, or will rise no higher than our knowledge of him. Our worship of God will rise no higher than God himself when we come before him is the big idea today. Theology, or the proper study of God, should always lead us to doxology. You know that song, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You know that song? Doxology is just praise. The more you know about him, the more you want to sing about him. When you first got married, young man or young woman, the more you met that person, the more you wanted to tell the world about that person. And this is so true, because the more you know about this God who wins, it's not just what you're thankful for, but who are you thankful to? And our worship will rise no higher than the more we know about God. Now be careful. You can know a lot about God and not worship him. And you can worship God and not know a lot about him. We need to have both of those in our arsenal. And so today, I want you to see three reasons why our knowledge of God leads us to praise God in every situation. But before we get there, I want to set the context once again. I want to just, uh, I, I say this as an apology. Last week, I got very impassioned with my preaching, and that may have stepped on some of your toes. And I was particularly focused on one part of the Revelation study, and I'm sorry. I did what they did in an opposite way. This book of Revelation can drive us all mad, Amen. And so thank you for your grace, but we always want to center it on Christ, and that's what I pray we do today. But I want to set the context for you again. Remember, it is John who is writing this book. He's already told you that twice. He said that back in in verse 4. He's going to say it again and again. He said it in verse 1. It is John who's writing this. And the context is, is John is the author. He's the apostle. He's on the island of Patmos, verse 9 of chapter 1. He's on, a, he's on a castaway island. He was the first survivor before CBS picked up the series, right? 
He was exalted or exiled there. He was probably there on labor duty. He was probably there as, as a reason because what he said in verse 9, because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. That's why he's there. And he's under a wicked ruler named Domitian. We talk about Nero a lot. You've heard that name before, Nero, who used to do terrible things to Christians. He was the first to throw them to the lions and burn them in garden parties. But Domitian was the one who cranked it up another notch. He decided that he alone was worthy to be worshipped, and he alone was going to be worshipped. And anyone else who didn't believe in that, well, you'd be killed or sent off to islands like Patmos. And so here he is, an old man now, John, writing to seven churches who needed comfort, who needed encouragement, instruction, and assurance. And so he writes to them these seven literal churches that we're going to start looking at in a couple weeks as we go through. And it's like a circular route. If I could put it up on a map for you, it's a circular route. But there are some things you need to know about this. And I want to just encourage you with this. John is really old. Like, he's old, old. He's been around so long, he's really old and melting away old. Does that make sense? Some of you feel like that every day, right? But that's, that's the reality of John. Three things I want you to see from this context. The first is this, is that we will remain immortal, George Whitfield said. We will remain immortal until we have completed all of our work. I want you to think about that for a second. Until God is done with you on this earth, you will remain immortal. They can't touch you. They can hurt you. They can throw sticks and stones at you or whatever and, and say nasty words about you. But that's what is true. You know, we, t- we often see these interviews about people who turn 106 and they ask them, what's the secret of life? And what do they usually say? You know, don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do or something like that. And, and they tell all these things about diet and exercise and those have their place. But the purpose of John had not yet been fulfilled because God has, was not done with him yet. And I want to encourage you with this. God spared his life for the nine days he says it took to write the book of Revelation so that he could give us an encouragement for all ages. And look, the fact that you're here today and still breathing, even if your body isn't moving the way it used to or your brain isn't operating full force like you would think it should, the fact that God has specific tasks and plans for you reminds you to have the fact that God is not done with whatever purpose he's put for you on this earth. Take encouragement from that. And church, that goes for Tower View Baptist Church as well. Until God shuts these doors, literally, this church still has a purpose, has a reason for Grace Moore and Maple Park and Clay Como and Randolph Corners and the whole nine yards. Don't give up on it until God gives up on it. Amen? And that's what we say. Second thing that this little introductory context teaches us is not only are we immortal until the work is done, but we are also going to stay and be in the way of God is the safest place we can be. Does that make sense? When you are doing God's work and you have that attitude, no one can touch me until God calls me home, that, that does not mean we live recklessly. It means we live intentionally and holy. Holy, holy, holy is he. But consider this. John's life is nearing its end. He could cash in his 401k. He could cash in his retirement many times over. But God in his mysterious providence finds him in an island in an isolated place away from people and things he knows and loves. He could have been resentful. He could have been angry. He could have been mad. He could have been in despair. But in nothing in this whole book do you ever see John with any negative attitude. Oh, how all of us could get a little bit more of that, pointing all fingers at the pastor, right? Because how easily do we complain? But he accepted his situation. He finds peace with it. And so what is he doing? 
in all the things that are going on around him, he's worshiping God. He's, he's raising his voice in praise. He's writing down everything to be an encouragement to himself and others. And he has the peace and joy of everything that he has because he's with God. That's the safest place he can be. And so, friends, we often drag ourselves, especially on a holiday weekend, to church. And even as a pastor, we have those days. We don't feel like worshiping. We don't want to go to prayer group on Wednesdays or do this with that or do this with other people. We don't want to trade places with John. But can I remind you? John was probably closer to Christ than us, and we live in one of the best countries ever known to God's green earth. We have a freedom to worship in a warm, nice, comfortable church. And today, do you know what? God still afflicts us today. He still puts stuff on our backs today. Can I encourage you that whatever infirmity or affliction or trial or temptation you're facing could be the greatest blessing that God has for you, whatever that is. It was for John. And he needed that encouragement just as we need. The last thing before we get into the main message is this, is that not only is it the safest place to be in God's will, you're immortal until God moves you on. But the context of John writing this also reminds us thirdly, that God is in sovereign control of all things, but is not the author of evil. Let that sink in for a second. Everything that's happening to John, all this persecution, is under God's control. But God is not the author of evil. Satan is doing all the persecuting through his people. God is permitting Satan to do certain things, as he did with Job, but the sufferings of Satan are nothing compared to what God has in store for Satan. And that, we'll get there in chapter 20. By the way, spoiler alert, Satan goes down the lake of fire with all those who reject him, and God wins. God uses even the devices of Satan to draw people close to him. You know, it's said the old Puritans used to say that ministers or pastors usually get more of their share of sufferings in this life so they can identify with the people they lead. I think that's true to a great degree. And so what John is experiencing, John must die to live. And John says in this context that only God wins because only God is completely in control. Can I encourage you once again not to do your study of God's word by the headlines? Study your God's word by what is written in the word, and your life will be so much more peaceful. Our lives, we look at the news, we're not in a hole, but I can tell you, having turned off the apps that give me the update every time someone does something or says something, has our, our stress levels, at least in that realm of life, have gone drastically down. We make up for it in other ways, but you know what I'm saying. So be encouraged this morning. Three ways we can praise God. Why does he praise God? He praises God because of what the work he's done. But here's the first main point I want you to see. He praises God and reasons to praise God he gives us is because the Father is flawless in his person. You know what flawless means, don't you? It means perfect. It means without error or without blemish. He writes there in verse 4, he says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The seven churches that are in Asia. Remember, he's writing in modern-day Turkey. This is a circuitous route, like a mail post route. And he tells them, grace to you and peace. Grace is a, is a uh, Gentile greeting. It's God's unmerited favor, all he does for undeserving sinners. And peace, shalom, is a Jewish greeting, meaning that to have peace with God, you have to have the grace of God. He's introducing himself to both Greek and Hebrew believers because they're all there. Paul said in Titus 2.11 that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But you notice that phrase there, and it doesn't seem to be connected. That first phrase in verse 4, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is he referring to there? 
Well, it looks like it's referring to Jesus, but, well, he specifically calls out Jesus in verse 5. And then you see those seven spirits. We'll be there in a minute. So who is he talking about here? Well, this is the title of God the Father. It relates to the Father. What you're about to see, guys, is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son being praised by John for the work he's doing and will do in the church. Remember, we believe in one God in three persons. We do not believe in three gods, but one. And he describes him as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. This title only appears in Revelation. And it takes you back to that scene when Moses is at the burning bush. And remember that scene? And Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And God says that famous phrase, I am who I am. Now, a lot of you say that anyway, I am who I am. A little bit different. But what he's saying is, is that he is the great I am. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the God of the present, the past, and the future. He's the one who's incomparable. The Father who's referenced here is none that can be said. In fact, as often is, just like Moses and all the plagues were an attack on all the gods of Egypt. Remember, all the plagues were against the God of Egypt. There were frogs. There was a frog god, and God showed all the, the, the victory over those. So the Greeks had a phrase. You ready for this? They used to say Zeus, their main god, was Zeus is, and Zeus is to come, or will be. Do you see what John just did right there? John, by God's Spirit inspiring him, took a phrase from the culture and completely turned it on its head and said, no, it's not Zeus, it's the one God in three persons. Oh, how the culture likes to take the things of God and twist it up. What well, not it great when God takes the things of the culture and twists it back right to truth, right where it should be? He's always in control. God is just as much in control. Some of y'all love Chuck Swindoll, so I looked him up on this, and he says it this way. He said, God is just as much in control of our unknown future and unnerving past as he is in our unpleasant past. Unnerving present as he is in our pleasant past, excuse me. He's telling them, little things are big things. All things are under his control. He who was and is and is to come. Church, we need that message today as well. Because as you look around the landscape of this country and all over the world, it seems like Satan is winning the battle. But what is our big title for this? God wins. In the book of Hebrews, you ever heard of that book before? It says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. Amy, if you want to put up this phrase, life is not hopeless because God is. Read that very slowly again. Not that God is hopeless, but because God just is. Because God is who he said he was. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Also in Hebrews, we can live so many aspects of our lives. And John simply says, I'm going to show you something. That the book always is. He's always the reference point. He's always the center. He's always the one by which everything else in our lives is judged. God always is. So we must not get into the routine of living a happy little conscious life without the reality that God is always ever-present. May we never forget. And he is saying to the persecuted churches, with all the lies ahead of you, with all the persecution before you, with all the death in your rearview mirror and ahead, I want you to get a hold of this truth. God always has been, God always will be, and he will not forsake you or the work of his hands. He is with you. John 14, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Your God is the God who was never created. He never had a beginning. He never has an end. He is the God who always will be and always has been. He is going to keep you. He will save you. No matter what your future holds, he's got you. And grace be upon you and peace be upon you because of who he is. Is there not a reason to praise God, church? Amen? He is the God who is flawless in his person. The Father is flawless in his person. Life is not hopeless because God is. Sometimes you just need to recalibrate your life to remember that God is enough. And he is for all aspects. Now to this next one. Not only is the Father flawless in his person, but the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, or King James folks here, the Holy Ghost, is flawless in his presence. Now look down at verse 4, and you say, how in the world do you get the Holy Spirit out of this? Will you simply raise your hand if your Bible has the seven spirits? And I want you to raise your hand high. Seriously, raise your hand high. Look around. Does your Bible say seven spirits? All your Bibles should say the seven spirits, so all hands should be up, right? That's how that works. So what in the world is this? Is this a, uh, a, a God with multiple personalities? What is going on here? Well, there's great debate over who these seven spirits are. Some believe it's a reference to the seven archangels of Jewish tradition, of which the names I will not try to pronounce and bore you. Others say it must be the, the angels and their heavenly entourage. There must be seven specific angels he's referring to here. No, I don't think that's it either. In fact, I believe that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. You say, how does the Holy Spirit have seven spirits? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's a phrase we understand by Isaiah 11.2 and Zechariah chapter 4. I'm not, they're not up on the screen. I will read them in brief, but just write these down if you're curious. Isaiah 11.2, Zechariah chapter 4. Isaiah 11.2, Zechariah chapter 4. In Isaiah 11.2, the Spirit of the Lord is described seven ways. Ready for this? Seven ways. He says, the Spirit of God in all his fullness is the Spirit of the Lord is wisdom understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and a fear of God. Isaiah 11.2, the sevenfold spirit. And in Zechariah 4, it says, do you know what the seven branch, it talks about a seven branch candlestick. And that great phrase I prayed just a minute ago that you know well, that great verse, it's not by my spirit or not by my power, but my spirit says the Lord of hosts. And so these sevens are referring always to the Spirit of God. The seven in Isaiah, the seven in Zechariah. So who's it referring to? The Holy Spirit. God is not like, God is not like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The seven spirits are simply a reference to the one Spirit of God, who's the third person of the Trinity. Will you go to chapter 4, verse 5 of Revelation? Will you turn there with me in your Bible or your, your tablet, whatever you got? We see a sevenfold ministry in Isaiah 2. There's a sevenfold fullness, uh, uh, the candlesticks in, in, in Zechariah. But in Revelation 4, 5, you see it this way. He puts out for us a little, again, a number seven. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Will you go to chapter 3? He talks about... The chapter 3, all the headings you see there, the church of Sardis, all these things, uh, especially chapter 3, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The stars refer to the, uh, well, we'll get there. I'm not going to chase every rabbit. There's too many rabbits to chase in one thing. 
Suffice it to say, the seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. So John, get the big picture here. John is encouraging the churches to stay steadfast. You worship the one who is and who was and who is to come. Praise him for that. But don't forget the Holy Spirit because there is no ministry of the Holy Spirit unless you have been born of the Spirit. And if you want to put that little phrase up, that would be greatly appreciated. Look, the Holy Spirit, no matter what hardship we face, no matter what trial we go through, we have the Holy Spirit in all his ministry to serve us and equip us and to help us and bring us through. How do we know that? Well, it says in verse 4 of Revelation 1, if you want to go back there, it says that the seven spirits who are before his throne. Do you know what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is about? It's about serving God's people. The Holy Spirit is God's spirit, fully God and fully divine as he is, to go to all the people who are his and to minister to them. You have the same spirit in you if you're a Christian that Christ had when he was working the miracles. That is your ability by God's grace to fight sin, to share the gospel, to be okay in hard times, to stand firm in your faith. The same spirit of God is with you. You say, I still don't get the seventh spirit thing. It's okay. All you need to know is that he's with you and he's belonged to you by God's grace. What he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is for the throne of God in the same way, not in an inferior way, but to be a Christian means that God has actually brought to you himself living inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You know, our family just started watching in recent days Star Wars. Many of you, many of you love Star Wars, and if I even said one phrase, you could like quote the whole movie. I mean, that's how... And Nelson's back there, like, smiling ear to ear, because he, he's just, if you know Nelson, that's his, that's his scheme of life. But, you know, they talk about the Force in, in Star Wars. You know, the Force is strong with this one. You know, all that sort of thing. And, and you feel the Force, and you can raise objects with the Force. The Holy Spirit is not a Jehovah's Witness-inspired Force that we conjure up in times of great need. The one spoken of in Revelation and all of Scripture is one who is divine, the third person of the Trinity, and he lives with inside of you. Eat your heart out, Yoda, and Luke Skywalker, and Darth Vader, and Obi-Wan. Shall I go forth and show my geekiness? No, we'll stop. But I want to encourage you with that. God has sealed you. He's adopted you. You are, you are his until the day of redemption, and no matter what may come, you have reason to praise him because of the flawless presence that is the Holy Spirit. May God encourage us with that truth. But well, that seems kind of out of order, doesn't it? Shouldn't it be Father, Son, Spirit? Why did he do Father, Spirit, Son? Well, let's look at that. Because this book is really revelation about the exalting of the Son. And number three here, and we'll spend the majority of our time on this one. Not only is the Spirit faultless in his presence and the Father in his uh, person, but also here the Son is flawless in his provision. The Son is flawless in his provision. Remember, we have said Revelation is not about solving the puzzle. It's a picture book, and it's about the future, to be sure. But the book is about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see that he talked about the Father first, who was, who is, and who is to come. And then that sevenfold spirit from Isaiah 11, Zechariah 4, and other references. But now he focuses on the Son. Indeed, he'll say more here about the Son than he will say about the Spirit and the Father for the rest of the book. 
And so there are five truths I want you to see here about this son. The first is, and look at verse 4, into verse 5, it talks about his revelation. Excuse me, in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, we see that he says that he is the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the one who reveals the Father. He reveals the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So too, by his perfect, sinless life and by his works and his character, we have been brought unto God and given to God. If you want to go there and write this down again for sake of time, Psalm 8937, Psalm 8937 says that the sky, or excuse me, the moon is a faithful witness to the sky. The moon is a faithful witness to the sky. And now that, that prophecy is now transferred over to what John writes here about Jesus. The language is transferred to Jesus. He's a living metaphor, a witness, a martyr, a testifier of what the Father has done. And what has he done? He sent forth his son, and he so loved the world. And this same language is going to be used in other areas. If you look at chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 13, the same faithful language. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, that Antipas, Antipas rather, my faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus was a faithful witness. Jesus did not come and have his own agenda. Jesus had only one agenda. He spoke as the Father told him to speak, and he was carried along by the Spirit as the Spirit led him. And so in this verse, he tells us that Jesus is the great revelation. It's about Jesus, not about charts or whatever else. He also says, number two of verse five, that the reason we praise Jesus for who he is and what he's done is that in his resurrection, notice that in verse five, he is the what? He's the second born from the dead? What does your Bible say in verse five? He's the firstborn from the dead. You can find that same language of what uh, Brother um, uh, Ben preached about a month ago from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 18. Jesus is, did what no person has ever done. He died, he rose from the dead, and he's still alive to tell about it. I know right now in Gower, Missouri, which is a, which is a, a stone's throw from my hometown of Plattsburgh, there's, there's a lot of hubbub right now about a woman who was considered to be an incorruptible which in uh, the theology of the church that they represent is, is the, the, the path to sainthood, which uh, if they can verify she's incorruptible, her flesh is not melted away, that eventually she'll be venerated as a saint and, 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 and worshipped as, as a saint. And those words are used intentionally. But Jesus here is not some person who looks dead and was buried. He is alive, and he's coming, and he's got all these factors going for him. Firstborn is Messianic and Davidic. Jesus is first in time, but also in importance. Jesus is not the firstborn from the dead, necessarily. There were other people in the Old Testament raised from the dead, but he's the one over all those who've been raised from the dead. Do you see that? He's in charge. As Look at chapter 1, verse 18. We'll look at this next week. He says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. He is the one whose resurrection proves his provision is flawless. But also notice there in verse 5, he is, it's his rule. Why do we praise him? Because he's ruler. Look at verse 5. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler. Joe Biden answers to him. Obama answers to him. Trump answers to him. Bush answers to him. Putin answers to him. The guy in Ukraine whose name I can't pronounce answers to him. 
The Pope answers to him. Whoever is the, the leader of some county in North Nebraska where they have like 32 people, he answers to him. He's the ruler of all. And I want you to know it's not that he will be ruler. He is ruler. All authority, spiritual and earthly, are under his dominion. And this flies, as I said earlier, in the face of Rome. When he put that he's the ruler of all the kings, he meant that as a jab at Rome. Because in those days, unless you acknowledge that Caesar is Lord and you took some incense and threw it in the fire, you could be killed on the spot. And so too, he says he's ruler of all things. All glory and dominion belong to him. And church, that's another reason to remain faithful. If you're on the right side of history, you will always stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has revealed himself, he's resurrected, and he rules. But notice fourthly there, his redemption. His redemption. Did you see what he did for you there down in verse, into verse 5? To him who what's us, tolerates us, puts up with us. What's it say in verse 5? He loves us. If you're an underliner, make sure you underline that. This is one of the very few times, although it's emphasized many areas, that it directly says to him who loves us. Galatians 2.20 reminds us of that, that he died and he loves us. The Son of Man gave his life for us. How do we know? Because of his cross. He died a death, a penal substitutionary death. He lived the life we should have lived, but didn't. He died the death we should have died, but now we don't have to. He paid the penalty we should have, but can't. And he gives us salvation freely. Your Bible says that probably in verse 5, and he's freed us from the sins by his what? By his blood. Now, your Bible, if you're a King James or New King James, I know we've got a few floating around, and that's fine. Your Bible may say instead of, uh, um, uh, he, he, instead of loosed or freed us, it might say he washed us. It's a good translation. I would argue, though, that I think loosed or set free is more in view. The point is, we get the better end of the deal, don't we? By God's glory, for his glory. He freed us. From sin's penalty, that's our justification. He freed us from sin's power. He's sanctifying us by the Spirit, making us like him. He will free us from sin's presence. Someday, it'll all be done and over with. That's glorification. It reminds you of that great hymn by Philip Bliss. Tina's going to start singing it as soon as I get two words into it, because that's what I love about her. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's what Christ did for you in our redemption. But notice the last part into verse 6. He made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father, the glory and dominion forevermore. Blood-freed sinners now fill his kingdom. And you see this in verse 6. Why does he do this? Because it brings glory and dominion and praise to him forever. We are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.5. We serve and worship and bear witness to Christ, and that's what we're called to do. What is your job here on this earth? It is to make much of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, whatever you got, whatever infirmities you have, whatever ailments you have, whatever the Advil and the, and the uh, uh, Tylenol and the ibuprofen can't kick, it doesn't matter. You can glorify God with your life, whatever it is wherever you are. Whether you're as healthy as a horse or you might be as dead as a horse that's been beaten a few too many times over, God can use you and he's not done with you. And what does this mean for us? It means 
And what it's going to point to is look at verse 7. This means, and it leads to, because of what the Father has done in his, his person, because of what the Spirit has done in his work for us, and now what the Son has done in his provision, look at verse 7. He says, Behold. Amy, if you want to go to the next slide as well. Behold. And because we know this coming will do three things, and we will close. He says, verse 7, behold, behold. He's going to use that word at least, according to my calculations, 25 to 27 times. He says, behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He's coming in the clouds. He's coming when you least expect him. He's coming like a thief in the night. He's coming. And, and this word, he's coming with the clouds, or phrase, goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen, where he said, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds. How's he coming? He's coming powerfully. He's coming literally. He's coming historically. And he is coming visibly, coming with the clouds. You know, back in 1918, I'm not going to ask who was, coming, who was around during that time, but he will be seen. Thank you, Amy, for putting that up. I jumped ahead of myself. He will be seen. You know, back in 1918, I don't think we have anyone in here who was born in, before that time or remembers that time. But in that day when the Great War, World War I, the war that was supposed to end all wars, ended, the Jehovah's Witnesses said that Jesus had a secret coming. And it was crickets. And it was that awkward silence. And you know that great 144,000 that Jehovah's Witnesses attach on to in Revelation. You had to be there in 1918 to get the greatest benefit someday in what they consider to be their heaven. Well, guess what? Most people of that generation and time have pretty much passed away. Actually, all of them have. So if you're Jehovah's Witnesses, you're like a dog fighting for scraps at the end of a table trying to get in somewhere. Because Jesus, they said, came back invisibly. And if you didn't see him, well, that was your fault. Well, that's convenient. That's not our God. This coming will not be God incognito, which was the case to some degree when he first came. No, his authority, his deity, his sovereignty, all that he has will be seen like this. We will be taken out of here in the twinkling of an eye. He will come in the twinkling of an eye. And the whole earth will see it. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to bring sorrow. That's the second part I want you to see. Look at the end of verse 7. It's going to bring sorrow. His coming, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God, the reason John is worshiping him here, verse 7, he says, and all the tribes of the earth will wail. Your Bible may say mourn there on account of him. Why are they crying out? Why are they mourning? Well, because Jesus is coming. Will you go back to Philippians chapter 2 with me if you have your Bible? You know where we're going with this, but I want you to see it. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, go back there. Go back. You can write your notes in a minute. Don't worry. It'll still be there. Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to go down to verse 9. You know these verses well. If you have not underlined these verses, you have a pew Bible or your own Bible, feel free to underline verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who's the him? It's Christ and Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
when he comes back, there is going to be weeping and wailing by the people of this earth. Why are they weeping and wailing? Because, yes, one of the things is they're going to mourn because they now live in judgment. Go back to Revelation. I want to show you a couple things. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Some of them are going to be crying out because Revelation chapter 6 tells us that they do not want this to happen to them. So Revelation 6.16, Revelation 6.16 says, They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? Why is the earth going to wail and mourn when Jesus returns? It's because they now realize and finally acknowledge publicly that everything they knew to be true already is finally coming to pass. May I remind you there are no atheists in this world. The Bible is utterly, utterly clear that every single one of us can know there's a God, knows there's a God, but has to make a choice what we do with that God. Romans 1 says you can look out and look at the general creation and see there's a God. The heavens, Psalm 19 says, declare his handiwork. But there's also Romans 2, an internal conscience that people have. You can ask any death row inmate, do you know what you did was wrong? And you know what they're always going to say? Uh-huh. They may claim innocence, and some of them rightfully have been innocent. I don't want to lump them all into one thing. But you can ask anyone with a conscience, did you know what you did was just wrong? And they will say yes if they're honest. They may shake their head no, but internally that guilt is there. Guys, this world will be coming. I have said this often, I'll say it again, and we'll see it in Revelation fleshed out in a couple months. Someday, when everyone stands before earth, if you're a Christian in judgment, you will stand and judge with the world. And when God sentences a sinner who rejected him to hell, all of God's people will stand in resounding clapping and say amen, rid the earth of him, and praise the Lord. Why? Because we are glorifying God as he ought to be. Because every person who rejects him has made a choice not to acknowledge the one that John is praising, Father, Son, and Spirit. That may sound intense to you, and it it is. But I want you to know, when you see as God sees, we will not see it as God. Why don't you have pity on him? God's given them pity for all their life, and they wanted nothing to do with him. May we praise him accordingly. And we know his coming will be seen, bring sorrow. Look at verse 8. We'll close here. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. You know these verses well. He's praising the Son because he is perfect in his provision. He, he will be seen. He will, his coming will bring sorrow, but it will also bring strength. Notice that first phrase there, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? You know that well. That's the A to Z of the Greek alphabet. The premise is expanded in, in, in Revelation twenty two thirteen, and it's applied to Jesus where he says, quote, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And you know those verses well. He knows the certainty of his promise. We will be in strength because we have the one who holds us A to Z, just like that. But notice also he says he is the one who is and was and who is to come. Wait, is that referring to the Father or the Son? Well, in this case, it's referring to the Son, but God is eternal and everlasting. There's never a time when he was not. There's never a time when he said that I can't do this. And he's taking us back in verse 7 
to what he's already said at verse 4, that once again there is coming one who is more powerful than anyone else, past, present, or future. John is saying that God is in control of the world and all human activity within it, and that he is of eternal origin, and the goal of history is entirely revealed. Thank you, Chuck Swindoll. Great quote. But notice that last phrase. If you're an underliner, this is a good one. That last phrase in verse 8, the Almighty, do you have that there? It's the Greek word, pantakrator, which appears 10 times in the New Testament. I don't say that to impress you with my bad linguistic abilities. But I want you to know that nine of those quotes about God being the Almighty are used in the book of Revelation. The other one, the 10th one, is in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, where this is in quotation that we're quoting right now. The title says he's almighty. Do you want a reason to praise God today? He is in control of the world in the next. He's not, as some say, and Brother Willie, you will remember this from many years gone by, that God learns as he goes, that he, 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 he kind of learns as you learn. He steps out as you step out. God responds to what you're doing. That's not a God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has a plan, and he's sticking to it. He, that's what he's going to do. These titles leave no room for open theism, a God who's absolutely not omniscient. This is a God who's Lord of history. He's Lord of your life. He's the one who birthed you into salvation. He brought you into this world. He's going to save you into this world. That's why the book of Revelation has so many themes. This is why if you know someone who denies that Jesus will hold you for all eternity, or to put it in simple terms, that you can lose your salvation, look at verse 8. How can you ever lose your salvation? He holds you from beginning to end if you're truly in him. If you walked away from the faith, that shows you never had any faith to begin with. And so he's the one that caused you to be born. Church, I just want to encourage you today to submit your life to him, to trust him, to know that whatever circumstance you're in, that he is able and sufficient and can take it. We've been here long enough as a family and as leading as pastor, one of the pastors, whatever, to know that God has walked many of you through many situations that you look back upon and say, I have no idea how we got from A to B, but I know that God holds it from A to Z. Set your hope on him. He's able. And I know I did the very thing I said I wouldn't do last week and kind of went off on a rabbit trail chasing people and things with eschatology, but I want to just remind you, this is why it's not about what view of revelation you hold. It's about what view of God you hold. Because we don't worship a system. We don't worship premillennialism, dispensationalism, or amillennialism, or post-tribulism. We worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And the more you know about him, the more it affects it here. And the more it affects it here, the more it affects it out there. That's really what Revelation is all about, because God wins. Will you pray with me this morning, and we'll close out. Lord, we are so grateful that in your character, we can praise you that John gave three mighty reasons to praise you this morning. Lord, because you are flawless in your person, life is not hopeless because you are. Because the Spirit is flawless in his presence, no matter what hardship we face, we thank you, Lord, that your Spirit, fully divine, part of the Godhead, equips, encourages us, even, even convicts us to bring us back to Christ. And we know from Hebrews 12 that those who are disciplined in the Lord are truly of Christ, that God has no illegitimate children. And Father, we thank you that the, your son is flawless, that in his revelation, he was the faithful witness, that in his resurrection, he's the chief, he's the ruler, he, he's the one who redeemed us and freed us, that he reigns, that there is none above him. Lord, we thank you that your return, Father, Son, and Spirit, will be seen 
that someday you will set all things right and we shall see as you see that we now see dimly by faith that we will cheer with you for every judgment you cast upon those who, who forcibly take the knee but have known internally their whole lives that nothing else can be true except that you are really Lord. They just didn't want to acknowledge it or accept it. And finally, Lord, that you are our strength because you are the Alpha, the Omega. You are the one who is the Almighty, and you are the one who was and who is and who is to come. Father, I can't say that I walk this perfectly or anyone else in this room does, but thank you this week that we can walk with a greater confidence in our step, not pridefully or boastfully or, or, or patting our own uh, chests or our backs or saying, look at me. But Lord, may we praise you because we have learned once again who you are. So may we be humble, may you be strong and mighty as you are, and may we see our place, and may we see yours. But we thank you that you came to and sent your son to us, that while we were yet sinners, he did, did indeed die for us. We love you, Lord. Be with our church now and all churches everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.